uh, welcome to another episode of uh, Bradley Basics. I've got a really special guest here, Mark uh, Kolakowski. I think I got his name no, right. No, you got it absolutely right. You got it right. All right, great. How are you doing, Mark? So, oh, yeah, you're just yeah, great. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting. Um, as you go through life, you have conversations. I mean, we've, we've probably been on the ice together for, I don't know, years. Probably a long time. You yeah, know, I know. It all depends how long you've been going to that rink. Is it yeah, yeah, six years, eight years? I don't know how long. Right. And I always knew that you went to Harvard, but I never, I'm never really uh, had any kind of question to pursue that. And we just got to talk. And and, and you have this great book, uh, Career Confidential, which I read. Unbelievable. I, I wish I would have had that book when I was younger. It would have helped me out uh, a lot of different things. So that's what we're going to discuss too. But um, yeah, just, you know, looked at your your background uh you know you were in an accelerated program at regis high school can you tell us about that well as much as i can say if uh regis high school is an independent school but it's run by the jesuit priests in new york and it's pretty much their flagship high school in north america it's very competitive to get in everyone gets in on a full scholarship and that's a story in itself because wow. it was uh, set up in 1914 by an anonymous benefactress who gave all the money to set up the school. And essentially the school was run as her family's private charity, keeping themselves anonymous for roughly the first 50 years of its existence. And then in more recent decades, it's essentially run almost entirely on donations by alumni. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then uh, you graduated from Harvard in three years, right? Well, that was due to, at the time, Harvard was very liberal about granting uh, incoming students sophomore academic standing if they had passed the number of advanced placement exams. Mm. And the uh, program at Regis was so advanced that I piled up more than enough advanced placement credits to come in as an academic sophomore. Mm. And part of what my mindset was, A, I was a young man in a hurry, and B, you know, my family didn't have a lot of money, mm-hmm. and it was a big ticket paying paying for Harvard, so, so if I could ease the burden on my family by getting my degree requirements done in three years rather than four, I was all in oh, yeah. for doing that. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And uh, you had a, you uh, graduated with an economics degree, and you had over a, over a 3, 3.5 grade point average, a high grade well, point average? Well, maybe you're trying to translate the issue at Harvard is is they didn't use the GPA-type system. They were on a very traditional system okay. of, of A, B, C, D, or whatnot. So, so I essentially had had like an A minus B plus average, but, wow. but I graduated manya cum laude in economics. So that's with high honors. Because to get honors at Harvard, generally you had to write a thesis, which mm. is sort of a, for an undergraduate, sort of skinny down version of a doctoral dissertation. So I wrote one about, about the securities markets in the United States. Wow. That's awesome. That's all. And then you got an MBA at Wharton, right? The, right. That's, that's, what, that's a business school of the University of Pennsylvania. Correct. Right? Correct. And it has distinction of being the oldest uh, collegiate business school in the world, founded really? in 1881. Oh, my God. And yeah. And so I studied finance there. That's awesome. And, and in the book, you, you had an opportunity to work with a uh, Nobel Peace Prize winning uh, Well, professor? not Peace Prize, economics. Well, not oh. really work, the, but one of my... Uh, one of my professors at Wharton was Lawrence Klein. People could look him up. He was one of the uh, founders of the field of econometrics, essentially building complex 
uh, statistical and mathematical models to predict the direction of the economy. Wow. And that was an area that, in which I had a great deal of interest, had had some studies as an undergrad at Harvard, and when I had a chance to study under Klein, who received the Nobel Prize for his Oh, it's Nobel Prize, Peace Prize, yeah, it, something no, else. No, yeah. Well, the, no, the What's Nobel... The well, the Nobel Foundation in Sweden hands out prizes in a number of different areas, mm -hmm. such as chemistry, physics, there's the Peace Prize... But in more recent decades, they also introduced the prize for economics. Oh, wow. And Klein was one of the earliest recipients of the uh, prize in economics. That's awesome. And he was also a very good person to study under. Oh, I bet. So I guess, I guess it's safe to say you know a little something about money. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I at least pretend to. <laughs> yeah, and he worked at some pretty major co companies back in the day, Western Electric, AT&T, Merrill Lynch. And you retired early, right? You retired when you're 40 years old? Well, well, roughly? maybe well, roughly. I was just a few months shy of my forty-second birthday okay. when, when I decided to uh, leave the corporate world and strike out on my own. Yeah, and, and what are you, you're currently writing, right? So I, we're following each other on LinkedIn now, and I see a lot of your nice articles, like like a lot of tech articles you're writing for. Now, is that? Well, was I really tech articles? I've been uh, my main outlet for writing since the beginning of 2016 is a, been a website called Investopedia. Okay, which which started out uh, the concept, if, if you could parse the word, investment cyclopedia is what it was initially supposed to be, a, how shall I say, massive compendium of terms and concepts related to finance and investing, the securities markets, economics, and so forth. And then after going from roughly 1998 when it was founded to 2016 when I joined them, the editors decided that Investopedia was essentially, how should I say, as complete as it could be in terms of a dictionary or reference tool of economic and financial and investing concepts. And then they started to pivot more towards doing summaries of news related hmm. to investing in the markets. And that's what I've been doing uh, during my time with Investopedia. In fact, I was just asked about this. I've now, uh, I'm now up to 1,290 articles that wow. I've contributed for them. And we're currently on a hiatus here because now the editors are reevaluating where they want to take uh, the site's direction. So they've put most writers on hiatus since uh, mid-February. So we'll see what happens. So what's, what's the goal? To, to educate people on terms or, or trends or... Yeah, it's essentially everything, and and you know, and I urge you, your listeners to just look up Investopedia. Okay. dot com. I'll put it in the post. Yeah, I'll put it in the post. And and uh, it, it it has a high degree of how should I say credibility because even people I know who are professionals in the financial and investment industry either either. People you call stockbrokers or financial advisors or investment managers, they are well familiar with Investopedia and actually use it. But, but the pivot has been in recent years since they feel that they're pretty much saturated in terms of explaining basic terms and concepts to focus more on breaking news related to the market. So like, for example, back on February 27th, 
Lots of people, even though they don't invest with him, follow what Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway has to say. Mm -hmm. And on that date, he released his annual letter to shareholders and Investopedia signed me to as soon as that was posted on the net to read it and then to summarize what I thought were the major topics that he brought up. Excellent. And then just before that, they essentially made me a beat writer starting in November, where I was supposed to cover breaking news related to Apple, Microsoft, Mm -hmm. and Disney, all companies that had a great deal of interest among their readers. So Mm -hmm. on a weekly basis, I'd just be combing the news to see what may be of particular interest related to those companies. Well, that's that's nice, because then it's just a one-stop shop, you know, a lot of of research already done, it's credible, and sounds like a good... Good thing to be uh, paying attention to and, and reading. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, all right. So we'll just, you know, like the book, you know, the, the great book that Mark wrote was Career Confidential. It's, it's just a great guy. We'll go through that book a little bit later. Um, I, I just finished reading The the Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. And I believe if you're a young parent and you read both of these books— you could set your your child up for success, and maybe we could talk about that throughout the podcast. But I, that's what I, you know, just finishing up. That's my opinion. So, like, we'll go into the standard uh, career path questions, you know, that that I always do for there, and then we'll go into uh, talking about the book uh, and the different chapters and whatnot. Uh, uh, why'd you pick the career that you did? Really, and this is part of the reasons for for the book did not go into it very well informed. Mm. So essentially, if we dial back to when I was in high school, the question is, well, what to do next? What sort of path to set for your life? And I sort of felt that process of elimination. Mm -hmm. Medicine probably wouldn't be for for me for the simple reason that I'm a worry wart by nature and I would never get a wink of sleep. I'd always be concerned that I make the correct diagnosis, that I do the correct thing for this patient. I know I just never sleep and get an ulcer. Even if I were able to memorize all that vast amount of information that good doctors are supposed to commit to memory. So Mm -hmm. I struck medicine off the list. The law, some or other at that young age, the law did not interest me all that much. Mm -hmm. Even though I had one relative, a cousin of my mother's who was much older than she, he always used to insist that I should go into the law, that he felt that I had all the right tools to be a very successful lawyer. But somehow or other, you know, I'm a young high school kid. It just didn't interest me. Mm-hmm. How I got into the business career is is strictly through a friend of my father's. My father was very well read about a lot of things, and he also associated with a lot of people who were even better read Mm. about other things. And one of his closest friends for a long time was a man who was a certified public accountant and whose, how should I say, avocation was reading up on education, reading up on careers. And remember, this is years before the internet era where we're actually researching things took a lot of legwork. And this man was essentially a walking encyclopedia Mm. of information about what are the best colleges to go to if you wanted to pursue a a given course of study or pursue a given career. And he's also a a compendium of knowledge on what were best paying careers and Mm. whatnot. And so he just planted the seed. He did tell my father, no, the kid ought to go into corporate finance. Hmm. Well, I'm, 
I never really press, well, what did this man really mean by corporate finance? But he sort of planted that seed in my mind. And so that sort of set the course, okay, I'd study economics as an undergrad. And then it was becoming more and more evident at that point that to really advance in business, you also needed an MBA. So part of my plan is, okay, after I get an undergrad degree in economics, that then I would go to some institution, wound up being Wharton and uh, get a degree in finance and then figure out what corporate finance is all about. But, but then in terms of actually where I wound up, so I don't know if this is appropriate here. It, yeah. it, it's like so much in life, you know, this is something my father always used to emphasize among other things. You should have a plan. He mm-hmm. said, don't be, he always had these colorful phrases phrases don't be a floater don't just float through life like a board on the ocean you know have, have a destination have some ideas yeah but- you know one of the, yeah not to interrupt one of the things you know one of the sayings i've researched you know a man without a plan uh, goes back to his past like right. he doesn't he doesn't evolve he doesn't move forward you know he just floats around right so anyways, exactly yeah but <laughs> but but by the same token mm-hmm. you have a plan but you have to adapt it to circumstances. Mm. You may have great plans, but for whatever reason, it's not going to Adaptability. happen. Or alternatively, you have a plan, but an opportunity lands up in your lap that you just can't pass up. So, well, maybe maybe now circumstances have changed mm-hmm. and I have, to, I have to make a detour here. So with that prelude, what... what what really got my career going is, again, pure happenstance. So cast ourselves back to I've just uh, graduated Harvard, have my degree there. I've been admitted to Wharton. I'm going to enter Wharton in the fall. Mm-hmm. And what to do for the summer. Now, my father, let's back up a, little, a bit more. My okay. father was very much ahead of his time. You know, nowadays we have all this issue with internships of various sorts, mm-hmm. where in theory, even though you're getting paid very little or nothing at all, you're supposed to learn something and mm-hmm. that imparts knowledge to you and enhances your resume. Well, when I was a kid, uh, there was really no such thing. Nobody ever heard of something called an internship. Certainly the the word was not used. Mm-hmm. My father, though, came up with this concept, again, with the friend, jointly talking with the friend who uh, planted the seed of corporate finance in my mind, that while I was in high school, my summers should not be spent chasing minimum wage at some menial job. Because I thought, what value is that going to give you long term? Mm-hmm. Okay, may teach you some work ethic, but you already knew I was a frugal guy who's responsible. So I said, just get a couple of bucks sweeping up in the summer mm-hmm. was not going to enhance my career. And in fact, at that point in high school, it's not go- going to really enhance the college applications I'd be sent out. I'd be sending out. So with his friend, he concocted this idea again. The the term um, uh, internship didn't exist back then. The idea that I would go into an agency of local government where they'd be hopefully glad to take me in at no pay. Oh yeah, and I would study a problem and write a report. Mm. That's what the concept was that I would have some. This was your dad's plan. This is the plan, Mm -hmm. that I would have a tangible product, essentially going in as a consultant Mm. and write a report. Luckily, by that time, this man who I said is the CPA who had this wealth of knowledge about colleges, Mm -hmm. by that time, he had closed his private uh, 
accounting practice and, and was working for the business manager of the Jersey City, New Jersey School District, which is one of the largest school districts in America. Mm. So the business office is concerned with stuff, you know, ma- maintaining the buildings, et cetera, et cetera, stuff, stuff like that. You know, stuff, all the non-instructional issues that the school district faces. Mm-hmm. And so this man told my father, well, I'll talk to the new business manager who, who's a young and uh, very aggressive guy to mm-hmm. say, hey, we have this bright high school student here who just wants to look at our operations, you know, and understand what we do and maybe come up with some recommendations. And of course, the new business manager said, sure, great, you know, have at it. And and so I studied- what Did they pay called. you? No, no, no. The, 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 this was completely unpaid. Mm-hmm. Oh, still on pay. I was just curious. Maybe you got but, but maybe you a, a, a wage. No, 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 nothing. But but as far as my father was concerned, that was not the issue. The issue was oh, right, right. Yep. that I had this great resume builder mm-hmm. and also learned something. And again, a tangible product to report. Yeah, yeah. So so I observed. You know, I, the people I got to know in the business office there to understand some of their issues. And then with help from my father, who understood insurance, because he had worked in the insurance industry, he mm-hmm. pointed out several areas, oh, you know, where they could where they could improve insurance coverage at less cost. And those were, were the, some of the real highlights that the business manager, whoa, you, you, you know, this Jake, is great. Jake this, from State Farm. This, 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 yeah, <laughs> well, well, this is act, actually actionable stuff here. Mm-hmm. And then in succeeding summers, I did similar things again, uh, eventually at minimum wage at other local government agencies. But now I'm at the point where I'm really looking for a career in private industry. And I'm between my undergrad years at Harvard and and my graduate studies in Wharton, what mm-hmm. to do that summer. And this again is is luck happenstance. My father had a lifelong friend who's working as an engineer at Western Electric. Mm-hmm. Now, for those of you who don't understand that, I advise the younger people to look this up. Mm-hmm. You got to go back in time here that prior to the mid-1980s, AT&T was one of the most significant companies, not just in the United States, but, but in the world. It employed over a million people. Wow. At the time, it was the communications company because there was no internet no cell phones back then. It was all strictly landline phones. And AT&T controlled, depending on which statistic you use, roughly about 85% of the market in the United States. It also had one of the premier industrial research organizations in, in the world in, in the Bell Telephone Laboratories, whose inventions include things such as the laser, the semiconductor chip, the communication satellite, advances in television transmission, even the groundwork for the internet and cell phones were Mm. laid by Bell Telephone Laboratories, even though it would be many years later that they would become commercially viable. Mm. And AT&T was also vertically integrated, had a division called Western Electric that manufactured every single piece of equipment that you needed to run the phone network from switching equipment, transmission equipment, telephone poles, wires. Really? Da- yes, exactly. Down to the telephone sets that you had in home because they insisted you would only have AT- a Western Electric manufactured terminal equipment in your home. If Western Electric were an independent company, I think I looked it up, it'd be maybe one of the 10 largest companies in the United States ju- just on its own. So this is the manufacturing division of AT&T, and my father had a friend who was an engineer working for them, and this man was just good enough just to volunteer. He says, oh, I'll walk around and see if I could find Mark a, a summer job here. And 
just on his own initiative. He went looking around and he found an organization that was perfect for me. It was an organization who, which was populated by, it was almost like working in an academic environment. Virtually everyone in that organization had either a PhD or a master's hmm. degree in fields such as uh, statistics, mathematics, economics, or, or even some combination of all the above. And he actually found a manager in there who had been previously a collegiate professor of mathematics. Hmm. And big time. Long story short, wound up getting me a summer job there. And they actually had a real, not make work, but a real project for me to uh, study these various uh, companies which produced economic forecasts and to try to judge how accurate they had been. Wow. Because Western Electric would then use the forecast from one or more of these companies to run its own forecasting process. Because long story short, Western Electric was making millions, and I, I mean literally millions of different components to be used in the telephone system. And it was a massive project to try to forecast how much of each one of these types of components would be needed in the upcoming year and to schedule manufacturing in their, in their plants accordingly. Yeah, well, that's where, that's where SAP comes into play now. I don't yeah. know if you're familiar with SAP, but that's what SAP does based on orders. So that helps you forecast. But, but anyways, well, yeah, that's impressive. That's yeah, so yeah, basically, I, I, you, basically, you had the opportunity at, at the Jersey City Public Schools to do some anal analyzing, and then that right. just evolved into like a legit Western Electric Western Electric know, job, yeah. and 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 was such a and I did such a good job there that that the head of the department said, you know what, I don't know if we'll be able to bring you in again for your next summer between your two years at Wharton, but he says I guarantee you we will have a full time job offer for you mm -hmm. when you get your MBA, and and then when I graduated at Wharton. The, it was a very tough job market back then in 1982. It was up till recent years, it was the worst uh, recession since the Great yeah, Depression in 1930. A lot of inflation back then, and yeah, and 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 it's really massive unemployment. But but I was lucky that that group in Western Electric offered to bring me back full time, and also I had a summer job at a company called American Cyanamid, which was another large company. Whose, whose name has since disappeared through mergers. I had a summer job with them working for the corporate economist between my two years at Wharton. And I was also had an offer for, for, from them to join the corporate economist department. But, but for various reasons, I found the offer at Western Electric to be more attractive. So I went there. Well, it seems like more creative, give the ability to analyze and, and do something new and, and it may, it definitely have an impact. Well, we, you know? well, the main thing why I took the Western electric job when I graduated Wharton is not only did they offer me a somewhat more generous uh, package of pay and benefits than Cyanamid did, but AT&T had just announced just a few months before I graduated Wharton that, that they were breaking up the company, mm. that they're going to spin off all the local operating telephone companies into independent firms and that AT&T would retain Western Electric, Bell Telephone Labs Research Organization, and the AT&T Long Lines Long Distance Calling Business, with the trade-off being that the federal government would now allow AT&T to go into any unregulated market mm. that it wanted to. And AT&T's thought at the time is, 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 is that they had the technological expertise to become one of the major players in computers, rivaling IBM, which was the dominant firm at the time. Yeah, so basically kind of back in the, it was kind of on a mon monopoly, right? AT well, it was essentially a regulation. 
regular well it had been a regulated uh, a regulated telephone monopoly mm-hmm. and and various uh, government rules have restricted it from going into other markets because the main concern for, from the, the both the federal government and the various state governments is that if AT&T went into an unregulated market such as computers, they would somehow other find sneaky ways to, uh, to uh, how should I say, slip the cost of developing them and marketing them into the rates being charged to mm. people who were regular, regulated wow. telephone customers. Wow. So, so this was the deal AT&T cut, that, that they would spin off the local phone companies. One of the successor companies is Verizon. Okay, yeah, that's a big And big AT&T one. also has gotten back into the local phone business in, yeah. in, in, sub, in subsequent years in other parts of the country. But the whole idea is... ATT would spin off the local phone companies, be able to go into computers and other unregulated markets. And I was specifically brought in to do planning related to that big breakup of the company, which uh, took place on January 1st, the 1984. Yeah, 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 it's amazing. Like uh, a friend that I've met uh, through Barbara uh, works at AT&T. I think she's got, a, she's got a master's as well. And she just recently developed a... Uh, a closed network for uh, EMT and first responders, like a, a like a phone, like a phone network, okay. and a lot of security and stuff. So it's yeah, you, you have to. Be, she's she's a real high end high end person. You got to be high end person to work for AT and T. There's no question about it. Well, the next the next uh, question is, did you have a coach or mentor along the way? I think we covered that with your dad and yeah, and, your and, friend and essentially and and and. and, and 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 even with my father, I must say, even though the specifics of the sorts of jobs and tasks I, I, I was performing along the line, he really had no knowledge of them. But he was able; he was very astute person when it came to organizational politics and the like. Mm-hmm. So when I was talking about sort of the political goings on, he he was very astute in counseling me on what may be going on and and how I should respond. Oh, very important. Very important when you get into big organizations. We, you know, we've talked a lot about that. So, uh, all right. So, at, at what point or stage of your career did you pivot into, uh, you know, kind of running your own business? I mean, you're you're kind of retired when you're 42. You started doing your writing. Like, when did that when did that decision happen? Well, it, it, did you just look it, at your numbers and go, oh, I can just do this, well, or, it, or it, did you have a plan it, to get there? Or? Well, it, it it essentially was evolving over time, mm-hmm. and there are several factors here. One, yet another thing I have to give my father credit for, this is going back to when I was a relatively young guy still yeah, yeah. in school, is stressing the importance of living frugally and saving money. Mm-hmm. And the way he, he couched it, he says, look, you, know, you, you don't want to be um, – awake at night worried that if i lose my job i'm in deep trouble here right or alternatively to say i'm stuck in this job i hate with this company i hate but i got to keep going to work and get my brains beat out because i need the paycheck mm-hmm. so he impressed upon me the importance of living frugally saving money and he was also a self-taught investor how to invest conservatively but wisely and build up a nest egg so they said if you got to the point where they fired you laid you off it'd be sort of ah you know i have breathing space here to find the next thing to do yeah yeah or if you're in a situation you didn't like that that you could say i'm out of (laughs) here no no regrets bye yeah and 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 in fact one thing that i saw is absolutely true throughout my working life sort of a corollary to that he says you know companies if they figure you really need the money and the paycheck, uh, they 
they often will treat you badly because you're sort of a captive audience. Mm -hmm. If on the other hand, they figure out you have independent means, they often will tiptoe around you. And I found that- What do you mean tiptoe around you? What do you uh, mean? Treat you with kid gloves, treat you very gently. Because you're the sort of guy, as you put it, that could tell them, just get lost, I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. And I actually saw this dynamic, you know, he was absolutely spot on. I saw this dynamic throughout my career at several places, you know, the the, uh, guys who really needed the job and who were just beat upon because... Their superiors yeah, they're knew, they're knew, yeah. knew that they couldn't leave. And they got them. Yeah, they got you. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's that's, it's kind of a sick thing to have, but it happens. It's reality, you know, and it, and it took me a long time to overcome my, I don't know if that's the right word, naitiate or whatever. I was naive to that. Right. And I, you know, it, it like I said, hence, had I had your book and read up and I'd right. be aware that this could, ha- that could happen. Right. You know what I mean? And, you know, obviously- preparing for and being in the mix is a whole different ballgame but not being prepared and kind of getting blindsided you know what i mean it's that's uh that's tough that's you know it's like taking a shot in the gut you know it's tough it's tough but 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 this is essentially just my opening salvo here and trying to answer your question about my going off to do my own thing oh yeah yeah so the basic groundwork was okay from an early age i knew save money build up that war chest Mm mm-hmm then step two, sort of in the mid-90s, I don't know exactly what triggered it. I was always interested in writing. So mm-hmm. that would sort of be a dream career if I could make a career as a writer. So I started testing the waters, writing, tri- trying to contribute pieces about travel to various newspapers and publications because I enjoy travel. Uh, but but that wound up being difficult for, for for a variety of reasons. You know, again, this is mid '90s when the internet's just in its in its infancy, and so we're still talking about trying to uh, pedal your work to print publications. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what I found, mm, um, I, I won't disclose names, right? But 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 one major newspaper, which you would know what it is, uh, I contacted a travel editor there. And he spun this fantastical story uh, uh, by means of a brush off saying, oh, you know, the journalistic standards we have even here at the travel session. Well, it was all nonsense what he spouted me because he himself in his own writings did not adhere to these standards. It was so ridiculous as long the lines of you cannot write that the sky is blue in a travel piece unless you could also cite, well, the weather service confirms that it was blue at that time. And it was absolute nonsense, you know, it was really, and and then this is where you get into when people, as they say, blow smoke at you, what's really going on there. He just could have been honest and said, look, I have all the writers I need. Yeah. I, I contribute articles on my own. I don't need a new guy. I don't want to be bothered breaking him in. Okay. That, end of story. End but of story. but he felt spinning this fantastical utter nonsense that, that made him sound like a fool. Yeah, it's a sickness. I so, mean, it's, but, it's, it's control. People think that they've right. got control over you because right. you want to do something. It's but, like, dude, just be straight up. But but then essentially we got to the point, circa the year 2000, 2001, where there was a big shift in Merrill Lynch. A new man was rising through the uh, management ranks. He eventually would become chairman and CEO in later years. The guy's name was- At Merrill Lynch? Yeah, at Merrill Lynch. The man's name was E. Stanley O'Neill. And, and he was rising up through the management ranks. And he, he was creating sort of a hostile corporate culture. He, mm. he, he had the opinion that anyone who had been at Merrill Lynch for a long period of time, that there's something had to be wrong with them. He, he was of the opinion that people who, 
who change jobs quickly, so-called job hoppers, were the people you should have, hmm. which is kind of fantastical because these people, those sorts of people, have absolutely no loyalty. To, that doesn't to, work to, to, to the company. Well, well, what eventually happened is is that the sorts of people he hired who were job hoppers, all they're looking to do is maximize their pay for for the uh, short terms of their contract and didn't care if the company sunk mm-hmm. and. And essentially what happened after he became chairman and CEO, he very nearly pushed the company into a bankruptcy hmm. by hiring people like this. And it was only bailed out when Bank of America bought Merrill Lynch at a fire sale price late in 2008 during the uh, during the financial crisis. Hmm. So, so essentially he had all these things building up. I was saving money. I was getting to the point where I felt that I had a big enough war chest. I started dipping my toe in the water riding and figured, well, you know, if I if I tried to do this full time, I'd be more successful than I was trying to do as a part timer. And then things at Merrill Lynch were not developing according to my liking. And I said, you know, maybe I'm at the point now that I've just had enough with the corporate world. And now it's the time to do my own thing, to get into writing and editing. And really the first big break I got was with the publisher of my book, Career Confidential, mm. a Bamboo Books, the fellow who runs that was a, a college classmate of mm. mine. And while I was still at Merrill, he had got gotten me, how should I say, a little sideline editing books for him, which I was enjoying. For the first book I worked on was one called On the Great Wall, which is a memoir by a Chinese woman of her life through... Uh, through World War II with the Japanese invasion of China and then through through communism under Mao. Oh, wow. And, 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 and even though she had attended mission schools in China and was reasonably fluent in English, you know, n- nonetheless, her written English needed a lot of polishing. And so I was there essentially to polish her writing. And not only is it a very good story, but I enjoyed the process. So, so this got me into saying, you know, oh, maybe fundamentals not- of being a good author. Yeah. 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 And, and so I said, okay, now's the time to make a break and to go full time into writing and editing, even though I'll say there that, that that's not an easy field to be in. And it really, it really took me until 2016 with Investopedia to really find the right niche. You know, it's mm-hmm. about 15 years. So, well, you had the you word know, chest and you know, you're able to, able right. to start, you know, and all, you know, all, you, we could probably talk for hours about all the different things you probably did to get up to, you know, where you're at now. And, you know, that's just, that's great. It's great. So, um, well, here's the you know the final question of the uh, career path questions that I have. Um, if you do, were to do it all over again, what would you change? Yeah. I mean, if you if you don't feel like you needed to change anything, that's fine. Well, too. You, know, just I, kind I, of a- you know, I definitely uh, sub-optimized in terms of you know how high up I got at organizations mm-hmm. and whatnot. It's really tough. You know, it's something I'd have to think about a while. But one thing that comes immediately to mind is maybe have my ear closer to the ground with corporate gossip. As, as odd as that sound. And what does that, that mean to you? Well, I, I was always the type, if you will call me a technician, guy who had technical projects to do and would execute them. Mm-hmm. But there are other people who always spend a lot of time having their ears open to corporate gossip about, well, what executive may be moving to this job versus the other or what may be, you know, the new corporate initiative down the line. And, and the people who were well plugged into sort of the corporate gossip and the corporate rumor mill 
were often those who did better in terms of promotion and mm. whatnot. And that's something I, I sort of a put my head down and, and, and get the specific task done type guy who disliked gossip. So maybe if I rolled back that I would have more my ear to the ground gotcha. about, gotcha. about stuff like that. And that would have helped me advance my career better. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I can, I, I can appreciate that for sure. Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's cool. Yeah. I, I, I totally get that, you know, like the conversation we had, uh, but, but my career, um, all right. So we'll go into the, some questions about the career confidential, uh, book. Um, you know, what's nice about the the first point I have is the intro and chapter one, you know, understanding, you know, understanding what a career is and what, what business is, you know, like how you define that, like, uh, what, what's a career, what, you know, what's a business. And, and, and even then you have to recognize that how should i say that easy definitions are hard to come by because you say what has been my career you know if you say okay two parts one is uh, business in the corporate world and since then a freelance writer and editor but even within uh, the corporate world and business world I've, I've done many different things. You know, mm-hmm. so one of the things we talked about earlier, you have a basic plan and say, okay, finance is probably where I belong. But depending where the opportunities opened up or, or where I got shunted within corporations, I wound up doing different things. So, okay, my first job at Western Electric is not really what I envision as being finance, in term, at least not in terms of raising money for corporations, which would be generally defines the corporate treasury function, but I was working in this forecasting unit where, where I was using my expertise in economics as well as in financial analysis. Mm-hmm. But that's something I never would have expected I'd, I'd be doing that. But if you asked me back when I was in high school or even when I was in college, but it's just that's the opportunity that presented itself. And then while I was in AT&T, um, an opportunity opened up, and this again is a somebody I'd gotten to know in that later in that later uh, summer job I talked about American Cyanamid mm-hmm. was herself a fellow Wharton MBA a few years older than me she had moved to a different division of AT&T the new division that was supposed to enter the computer markets yeah, yeah. among other things mm-hmm. I kept in contact with her yeah and things were not going as well as I thought they should with me career-wise in my first position at AT&T. And so I talked to her about it. She says, oh, there's some great opportunities here in the division where I'm in. Let me introduce you to some people. Well, that wound up leading to, to get a job mm-hmm. over there where I was working in what you call project analysis, where people had these ideas to offer new services or new products. And I was in a group that would evaluate them and see if they made financial sense for the company. Well, yeah, that's great. So, just you know, doing this podcast and listening to your path, it, it's it's blatantly obvious is that you know what you've done is with your analysts is very truthful. And so, when you have these connections with people like the colleague that helped you with the AT and T job, she knows that you're truthful. She knows that you're going to analyze it properly, and it's going to be right. You know, yeah. the, you know the if you think about the corporate gossip, that's just kind of knowing what the opportunity is. But then you see someone who gets that opportunity but it's not is not qualified because right. they're in they're because they're gossip like you know from the book uh i liked how you you had what horace and hail caesar you yeah. the corporate <laughs> conflicts and the one guy that opened the you were working and he came in and you know tell me about xyz 
give me a crash course. And next thing you know, you see that he's like, uh, you know, some high end guy for international AT&T and he's on, he's on TV talking about what you guys spoke about. Well, well, you know, I mean, it's just, and, and, and I mean, he's there. He's got the job. I mean, you know, you, you can't take it away from the dude. And, he's got the job, well, but, but it's just, it's crazy, right? Well, this is something I also saw firsthand in my early years with AT&T in the Western Electric Division. As I said, I was hired into this group that was almost like going into a university think tank with all these PhDs um, in, in, uh, in highly quantitative subjects. And, and my boss being a mathematics PhD who taught the collegiate level, then for some crazy reason, after I pretty much completed my forecasting project, that responsibility, along with me physically, were transferred to a bunch of guys who were barely competent. And my old boss, you know, the mathematics PhD was scratching his head saying, oh, you got to work for these bozos. <laughs> and, and, and I got frustrated work. For it. And, that's oh, what, yeah. and that's why eventually I said, I need to get out of here. And it's lucky I had that friend I made, the fellow Wharton MBA who was in the new division of ATT. He said, yeah, come on over here. I can rescue you and put you in a better spot. Yeah, yeah. And you had, yeah, and you had your war chest going. So, yeah, no, it's. That, that that's good so um yeah no that, that chapter two is is interesting in the book you know you you kind of talk about uh work to live or live to work oh yeah kind of kind of what you're talking about the war chest and and, like. and yeah well well this is absolutely key as we've mm-hmm. discussed offline you have to do your own self-assessment because the people who who really uh, how shall i say uh, uh, do very well in business, become successful entrepreneurs, uh, CEOs of multi-billion-dollar corporations, and on it. These inevitably are people whom I would characterize as those who live to work. Their whole lives cir- uh, circle around their business, their business careers. Whereas I think the vast majority of people really work to live. That mm-hmm. is, they go out. They need to earn money to allow themselves to live, and they want a lot of personal life, you know, family, to have time to devote to family and other interests. Mm-hmm. And this is a key piece of self-knowledge you need to develop if you want to be successful in your career or at least to pursue the right career, is that if you are a person who works to live – you probably should have lower expectations about where you're going to go in corporate hierarchies. You're probably not yes. going to be a CEO of a major corporation. Yes. You, you, you know, you right. when you when you're mapping out your plan, it has to come with reality. It's like you know, you and I, Sean, we're both you know hockey enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have the self knowledge, I could still be at my advanced age say, oh, you know, if I just skate a bit more, I could be in the National Hockey League next. Year. No, yeah, it, right. it, it's not going to happen right. for for a variety of reasons. Right. So, so you have to have that self knowledge about what your strengths are, what your limitations are, and what your key motivations are. You mm-hmm. know, is, are you motivated by money? Are you motivated by status? Or do you just want to make a, a decent living? Or are you just interested in building something new and exciting that that helps people and that's interesting to people? And maybe the money and the status aren't all that important to you. Mm-hmm. You, you, you need to do this self-assessment yeah, to, to figure out where you are most likely to do well and to make yourself happy. Yeah, that's that's great. That, very well said. That's brilliant. I mean, that's brilliant. That's what, that's what young people need to do. They need to start 
doing self-evaluations and, and, and putting well, together a yeah, plan. And, and, yeah. and it's like I mentioned earlier, at least one thing I got right early on, I think, is, you know, when I talk about career back when I was in high school, say, okay, medicine, a lot of my a lot of my classmates, I think roughly 20% of my classmates at Regis High School became doctors. But I somehow rather felt, you know, I'm the type who would worry too much, would be up at night. Mm-hmm. Even if I developed the skill and the knowledge, I just worry myself to, to death that I was well, I think it's amazing not giving that- the right diagnosis i think it's amazing back then that you were able to self-analyze yourself that way that that's a very that that's a very huge that's a very strong trait if i look back at my career you know like i told you i you know i'm from michigan i played junior a hockey in detroit you know i you know i was it was a d you know people come to recruit there to get for d1 i played with a lot you know three four guys that were in the nhl for 17 plus years whatever so it's a very high level um before hockey was as big as it is now, you know, so it was, it was very, very hard to make that team, but, uh, you know, it was just really to get money to go to school. And then when I realized I never had those self-evaluations, I never, I never thought about that, you know, when I was that age, when I was in high school, I never thought about, okay, what, what would I like to do? And it was just sitting down with my father, summer 92, and I co-opted Dow Chemical. And I said, oh, that material science engineer guy, yeah, I work with those guys. It was cool. When I do that, I can do the math. That was it, you know, but there's a lot more to it than that. You know, had I read your book, you know, I would have said, yeah, let me read this book. Let me go through this analysis of myself, these different types of degrees, different types of occupations. Where I grew up in middle of Michigan, it was, it was all Dow Chemical, all science. Everybody was a PhD or, you know, uh, parents of kids I played hockey with were, you know, balancing chemical equations, you know, like <laughs> watching, you know their kid play hockey and, and then they like a lot of their, a lot of, most of them are PhDs now themselves. Just brilliant people. My sister's a doctor. My buddy Eddie's a doctor. I mean, they're, uh, yeah, it, that's all I knew. Um, you know, it all worked out, but I'm more of a sales guy. You know, <laughs> it's like, you well, know, you're a sales guy with technical knowledge, which, yeah. which makes you more valuable as yeah. a sales guy than, than if you're trying to peddle some complicated products that you really don't understand. Oh, no, I, I do very well in sales because I, I, I understand numbers, I understand finance, I understand the role I play. Uh, uh, people that are big boys around here, you know, this place, like I've said a lot of times on other podcasts, living in this area, it costs a lot of money to live. People don't aren't going to spend time with you. You don't know what the heck you're talking about. If you're late, you, you don't have any value, you don't have any insight. They don't, they're not going to, they're not going to do business with you. You know, you need to know stuff and that, that, that's, that's all there is to it. Or you're, you're not going to, you're not going to sell anything around here. That That's all there is to it. So, I mean, it's, but yeah, but I like what I do. I mean, that's the key thing too. And that's what I've uh, utilizing your self-evaluation to figure out what you want to do, set a plan. Maybe it's a basic plan. You just it, doing builds confidence. You see a lot of people, a lot of young people are just kind of stuck. Read a book, think, and then do something. Try it. If it doesn't work out, try something else. Do something else. Continue to move forward. Because if you just sit and, you know, like Newton's law, you know, every uh, action has an equal opposite reaction. If you just don't do anything, there's nothing. There's no movement. There's no. There's no energy. You know, there's nothing happening. You know. So, um, yeah, well, I like too. Like your cha- uh, third point, chapter three. You know, you know, evaluating a type of degree. I like how you analyzed a. Um, what is it, a liberal arts degree and, and how that really right. kind of teaches you how to think. And I, I believe my Eddie, my buddy Eddie uh, has that degree as well as a doctor. And that's why I picked that. I was like, wow, I never, I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to have an engineering degree. 
for Michigan State. So it's all real technical, I guess. I didn't, but it's a different way of thinking. It's more of a uh, developing stuff and. Yeah, well, we, you know. well, there's several. Anyways. Well, there's several different things to parse from mm-hmm. here. One is, if you're looking to go into a particular field, especially mm-hmm. a technical field, yeah. uh, employers will generally look for appropriate coursework, if if not a degree in that field. So yes, if you want to be an engineer, it's kind of a tough sell to say I want to enter engineering. And do you have an engineering degree? No. Well, that's probably a non-starter. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there are and and this is. If if you're not dealing with very technical fields such as engineering, medicine, dentistry, the law, just to name a few, most what I call positions in general business just require general smarts and adaptiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I mentioned in the book one, one of the very smart guys I worked for at Merrill Lynch went on about how a lot of university degrees within the context of companies like Merrill Lynch are nothing more than pedigrees, as he put it. Mm-hmm. So it gets you in the door. Now, this is a guy, for the benefit of our viewers, because I've already, dis- or, or our listeners rather, I've already discussed this with Sean. This is the man who's maybe one of the most brilliant chief financial officers I've run across. Mm. And and he was chief financial officer for one of the two major divisions of Merrill Lynch, which contributed roughly half the revenues and half the profits mm. for, wow. for the company, which is in the billions. Mm. The punchline is that in his lifetime, he only took one course in accounting. All the rest was just sort of self-taught. Where he said the real value was for him is is as an undergrad, he had studied the Latin and Greek classics hmm. in college. And now as a second career, he had left Merrill Lynch shortly after I did. He, uh, where I last heard of him, he was teaching Latin and Greek to high school students somewhere here in New Jersey. Really? And the basic point he was making, which I agree with, is is you really need to come away from your schooling with some very, very basic, very generic skills, like think logically, have facility with numbers, or some people call that numeracy to become numerate. Look, I don't know higher mathematics. Yeah, I took courses in calculus. I've forgotten all the basics that I've taken courses in what they called operations research in Wharton, which is advanced mathematical model to solve business problems. Mm-hmm. But all that coursework is instilled within me, the ability to reduce business problems that involve numbers into into simple equations. And that's like second nature to me. Mm-hmm. You know, another key skill is to be able to communicate, be able to write clearly mm-hmm. and concisely. Mm-hmm to be able to speak well, speak in front of audiences. Mm -hmm. These are all the basic skills that if you've mastered all these, numeracy, literacy, the ability to to speak well, Mm -hmm. this is what will propel you through any career. And And then, yes, depending on what you do, there may be some specific knowledge, like some of the specific knowledge I picked up in school about economics and some special fields in economics and Mm -hmm. finance and some special fields in finance were were useful to me. But to a large extent, uh, 
my career, like many other people, had a large element of what they used to call OJT, on-the-job training, learning by doing. Mm-hmm. Doing builds confidence. That's one of the Learning by doing and then also being able to uh, think creatively because mm-hmm. what really propelled me, let's go back to that summer job between my undergrad years at Harvard and my graduate studies at Wharton where the friend of my father who was an engineer at Western Electric had got me in. Yep, yep. And again, to refresh all your memory about that, the problem that this group had is that they were that they were producing mathematical models to forecast sales of the millions of different Western Electric components and products. Mm-hmm. And the basic input they need are forecasts of the general economy. Well, I just concocted on my own a unique scheme for evaluating the accuracy of, of these various forecasting vendors. And that's what really impressed impressed uh, the people I was working for because I just didn't recycle some, how should I say, standard p- procedure mm-hmm. for for evaluating um, for evaluating these forecasts. I somehow other pulled out of the sky. I thought it was a unique way to, to look at these forecasts that nobody else had, and that's what really impressed my superiors. How'd, how'd you proof that concept out? Did you have a little? How'd you proof it out so? It, it, you know, people consider that it was accurate or... Oh, yeah, be, 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 because what I was doing is is that they'd given me three vendors of economic forecasts that AT&T, that various um, departments within AT&T were using. And this is back, again, pre-internet era, mm-hmm. really pre-database era. I had to go slogging through hard copy reports. So essentially, I was copying down the various forecasts that these agencies, or not really agencies, but but vendors of forecasts have been making for various economic variables over the mm-hmm. year, I'd lay them side by side. And, and normally economic forecasts are made on either an annual or quarterly basis. And then I had the idea, well, not only compare what they had forecasted for a given quarter or a given year to what were the actuals as reported by the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. But I also got the concept that, that say, well, there could be some variations quarter to quarter and, and year to year. What if I take longer term views like, say, over a span of, say, two years, three years, 10 quarters, 20 quarters to, to then add up? What uh, what each one of these agency I keep saying agencies vendors had forecasted for a given variable during that span of time, and compare that to the actual because they may have overshot in the first quarter of this year on this variable, undershot in the second quarter of this year, but for the first half of this year, be spot on. Mm-hmm. And that's something that just looking at each the the forecast for each quarter. If you looked at it, saying, well, you know they they. They tend to uh, deviate from the actual. I say, well, if you look at at their accuracy over longer stretches of time, well, maybe they're better than you actually think. And th- mm-hmm. and this is something that nobody really thought about. And you know, Amazing. Well, it's, it's like, rather involved, but but, yeah, yeah. but but and and also back then because we didn't have all the computerization and we didn't have personal computers. Why yeah. I, I had to do all this by hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean it. it- now, now with computers and the ability to, to crunch numbers in a sense, but to come up with that idea, again, it goes back, it supports the the basic things you need to get out of a degree so that you can think. 
And, and think you, creatively, right. not just recycle old, exactly. old ways of doing Come things. Up and then utilize these more modern tools that actually execute the work. You know, it, it, the next generation, you know, a lot of these young people, they have a great opportunity. They just, I mean, they have a great opportunity to do, to just take the world to a whole nother level. You know, if, if they're taught how to think and, and everything else, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. You know, it's pretty, it just, it just reinforces the value of having that type of degree that you, that you spoke about, you know? Uh, yeah. So that's that. And then the, the final question on the, uh, of the podcast, you know, the corporate culture, we kind of talked about that, you know, uh, hail Caesar, I think another one you, that was your term. And then was it Horace or Horace is another one you had. And then the corporate culture, like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, well, the man I used the pseudonym Horace for was a guy who's a divisional chief financial officer at Merrill Lynch, Mm -hmm. who, who's truly brilliant, but he had only taken one accounting course in his life. Mm-hmm. And he's the guy who talked about pedigrees. A lot of degrees are pedigrees that just get you in the door. But then after that, you have to apply yourself. Mm-hmm. And and of course, culture, it varied from company to company. As you, you know that there are certain companies and it was certain Wall Street firms were known for, for this, that they would only hire people from certain from certain high profile Ivy League or other major universities, whereas Merrill Lynch at the time was much more meritocratic and you had people who would rise to uh, chairman and CEO from institutions such as Penn State, St. John's University, New York, University of Miami in Florida. Mm-hmm. It was much different, at least back then, much different culture back then that Merrill Lynch was not so much into the uh, pedigrees as as the man I call Horace in, in the book put it, but but much more meritocratic organization. Mm-hmm. And then, as I mentioned, there was that CEO, who E. Stanley O'Neill, who nearly sank the company. He wanted to overturn the old culture that favored lifetime employment and, and long-term loyal employees to one, to one in which uh, it'd be a constant cycling of new gunslingers coming in and he thought that that would make the company more profitable but instead but instead what these people did is whatever would maximize their pay and they didn't care if it hurt the company in the long run and that's why merrill lynch is no longer independent idiot that's just you know if you want to make a change you you need to see what the culture is, talk to people, figure out what they do, honestly, and then and make some of make some tweaks. You know, that, that, that system was there, developed over a long period of time, hence people being there for long periods of time, and it was successful. There's something in there, and just to go there, and it's just a, kicking the can down the road, just a bunch of waste of time. It, well, it, it, well, it almost bankrupted well, uh, well, well, so, well, they so, did, they did, they bankrupt, you know. Well, it's also problematic, you know? as I point out in the book, is that just to say you have to do a lot of self-assessment of what's uh, your own strengths, weaknesses, and preferences to make good career choices and mm-hmm. good job choices. Also, another difficult part of the equation is if you're looking to be hired by a given company, being an outsider, it's it's difficult to not impossible to assess what the culture is like. You have to be lucky enough to have someone on the inside whom you can trust that can clue you in on this. Like, for example, AT&T, when I started in the Western Electric Division, everyone knew that AT&T, the old AT&T, was into lifetime employment, the longtime loyal employees. But I didn't understand that also part of the equation was that they believed that the process of getting promoted would be very slow. And that there was, and that there was sort of unwritten rules about you had to be, 
at least such and such an age with such and such amount of experience to move on to the next level. And that's something I did not understand going in. And that's mm-hmm. why I got frustrated because here I am the young go-getter doing all these great things. And eventually my management is telling me, no, uh, you can't get promoted because effectively you're, you're too young. But I said, but wait a minute, I'm doing a better job than all these other mugs out here. No, 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 you're, right. you're too young. You got to buy your, t-. well, that's something I didn't understand going in. And eventually this led to my leaving AT&T to swing to the opposite end of the spectrum. So we talked about offline i discussed this in the book with touche ross a, which was then part of the so-called big eight in public accounting mm-hmm. now there's a big four in part because touche merged with deloitte touche in their consulting practice had the opposite culture it was you should be on a track to be partner within a finite number of years or we'll tell you to leave mm-hmm. what they called an upper out policy but after my experience with AT&T as a young go-getter, I said, well, maybe I ought to try this. Because, yeah, because you're a go-getter. Yeah. Because then they won't be wasting my time. Right. If they say, hey, you, you're not going to grab the brass ring. They'll tell you to leave. Okay, fine. Then it's time to go on and, and do the next thing. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. That's great. I think I, it's just, uh, I, it, this is a great podcast. And I think I, I love the courage throughout your career, the, the fact, the self-assessment, making changes, being prepared to make that change. I did a, a, a podcast with Tim Clifton. I don't know if you know him. You know Tim Clifton, right? You know, you know the Cliftons. They're, Connor Clifton plays for the Bruins, the NHL. Oh, oh, uh, and oh Tim okay. Clifton, was okay, he gotcha. signed a deal with San Jose Sharks, and he's uh, now an engineer for uh, Newport News down in, he wrote real smart guy. He's 20 years old. But um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, just self-assessment, making changes, being prepared. That's what that's what what Tim Clifton is. He's a guy that uh, I told him straight up he could be a VP. There's no question about it. He's a dude that's that's prepared. You know, he he analysis and he's uh, getting ready to buy a, a, a nice asset for himself down there, a piece of property down there. He's he's got that all put together, and uh, you know, he's one of these kids that uh, knows numbers, manages finance properly. You know, used the time in the professional hockey uh, career to generate revenue for himself. And, you know, he's, he's a real smart, he's a real smart guy, real talented guy, real refreshing. So, all right, well, Mark, I, th- you know, this concludes uh, another Bradley basics podcast. I, uh, you know, I appreciate you taking the time. It's uh, I definitely learned a lot and uh, I'm sure I, I know everybody else will as, as well. And so in, in my post, I'll, uh, you know, put the name of your, your book. I'm also going to write like the uh, table of content so people can see the different chapters. I think it's a, very powerful thing. And, and then, uh, you know, I bought some of the signed copies from you today. So we'll see if, um, I can move a couple of those. Okay. Well, but, thanks uh, so much for having appreciate me. Appreciate it. So yeah, no problem. And, uh, hopefully we'll do it again. All very right. Good. Thank you. Th- thank you for your time, everybody. Take care.